the male vocalist of the year is... And this ACM song of the year is... For album of the year, Traveler, Chris Stapleton. Chris Stapleton. Nobody to blame, Chris Stapleton. Unbelievable. Garth Brooks just gave me an award from Iowa, I think. Uh, I want to thank my wife. I want to thank everybody who's worked on this record, all the musicians and uh, uh, all the PR folks and all the folks at the label. Everybody's worked so hard, and I want to thank everybody here for, for treating this record uh, so kindly. And that was Chris Stapleton. He just ripped it up at the CMA Awards. And I think the country's been waiting for an authentic artist like this, and Adele, and the, the types of folks who are coming up now, just great musicians, whatever you think about categories of music. This is just music, man. It's just good. And we love music here at Our American Stories. And so for this half hour, we're going to talk about Chris Stapleton. His life a little bit, but in the end, his music. And he was born on this day in history in 1978. Spent his time in a small town called Staffordsville. And he graduated from Johnson Central High. We're going to learn a little bit later. He's a pretty smart guy. He ended up going to Vanderbilt University and studying engineering, of all things. And luckily for all of us, he dropped out. And that doesn't mean the world doesn't need engineers. But what the world really needed was a Chris Stapleton record. I know I can't drive more than an hour right now without listening to it. <laughs> he channels, I think, what, Dwayne Allman and Bob Seger and B.B. King is what all I can think of. He has the lyricism of Seger. And lyrics of Seger's are just some of the best. And, man, his singing, you just hear Dwayne. I just hear it coming through. And that's why he sounds so familiar to people, because he sort of is familiar. The second you hear him, you go, I've heard this guy before. And even though you hadn't, you had. And it was a piece done on CBS Sunday morning, and we learned a little bit about Stapleton. And here he is talking about all the songs he's written for other people because he's been around a long time. I'm new to a lot of people, and and that's true. I'm, I'm not new to a lot of people in Nashville. Uh, they're like, man, I've known that guy for years. He's been bugging everybody. Anytime somebody sings one of your songs, it's cool. Very cool. Extremely cool. Like, I think it's the highest compliment. Any idea how many of your songs other people have cut over the years? Probably pushing 200, something like that. I don't know. It's a lot of songs. It's a lot of songs, yeah. So, uh, But I've written a lot of songs, too. Like, I don't know. Close to a thousand or more. A thousand songs. So the reason you don't hear about this guy in a clinic somewhere is because he's been a journeyman pro for so long that now that he's getting all this success, he's just not going to abuse it. Chris talks about his quick success after moving to Nashville and the jobs he did before that. I didn't know they would pay you money to sit in a room and write songs for other people. I always thought that George Strait was singing a song he made it up, and that was the end of it, you know. But but the instant I found that out, that that, that could be a job, I was like, well, that's the job for me. That's i got to figure out how to do that. You know, I moved to Nashville, and, uh, and four days later I had a publishing deal. So, uh, which is not, that is not anybody's story, but that's mine. So it's I a good story to have. It's a good story. I did all of my starving artist things uh, not in Nashville. So like? Have you ever had somebody stick a, like a pizza coupon on your windshield in a parking lot? <laughs> I did that. I sold cars. I was a car salesman. Were you really? Yeah. Wow. Yep. 
And he learned to write out of town. By the way, some of the actors I knew who came to New York who had been at the Guthrie Theater or the arena stage and really, you know, sort of gotten their professional chops out of town were able to come in their late 20s with real chops, with a real knowledge of what being a working actor is. The people who came at 19 out of college, oh my goodness, pity them. I mean, they just weren't ready. They were going to get eaten up. Chris says he did what he wanted on this last album because he had had one before. And the way it was produced, the way it was put together, it just didn't do that well. And so on this record, The Traveler, he recorded it and did it his way. Yeah, I thought this might be the last record I ever got to make. So, so I was just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to. I'm just a traveler on this earth. Shines my heart behind the pocket of my shirt. And what you're hearing back there is this remarkable harmony and... I think that Morgan Stapleton may be as good, and I say this with no reluctance whatsoever, may be as good a background vocalist as Emmylou Harris. And I think she has a lot of the same properties and the same concentration and focus that Emmylou has whenever she sings with anybody. And so we hear from his wife, his bride, his love, Morgan Stapleton herself, who says she is still very much smitten with Chris. And by the way, you can see it when they're on the stage. And that she can't believe it took so long for him to become famous. Back in the day when you were smitten with him, waiting for him to notice you. For the record, I am still very smitten. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. But, but did you imagine a day when so many people would also be smitten with him? Yeah, I can't believe it took so long. You always thought this day would come? Yeah, always. She has an unwavering belief in me that I don't even have, so it, it, it really helps. She, she has enough belief for both of us. And boy, that really helps no matter who you are to have that kind of partner who believes in you more than you do. And as an artist, oh my goodness, you can't survive without that. Because sooner or later, people won't like Chris Stapleton. And he will become yesterday's music until he becomes discovered again. Look, we did that hour on Johnny Cash. Star, not a star. Star again, not a star. Star again. You need some love in your life to be able to handle that. I want to go out right now with a cover that the Stapletons did together at the Grand Ole Opry. And it just shows you the power of their singing and how two becomes, well, just something so special. It's Bob McDill's Amanda. Take a listen as we go out. I've held it all in. God knows I've tried. On this day in history, in 1978, Chris Stapleton was born Look in the mirror in total surprise Have the hair on my shoulders and the age in my eyes Amanda, light of my life Fate should have made you a gentleman's wife Amen.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you're listening to Chris Stapleton and his wife covering Folsom Prison. And for the rest of this segment, you're just going to be hearing from Chris Stapleton as he should be heard, singing and playing. And so let's start cutting through some of the music. But before we do, two more insights into the man. Here's an interview we stumbled upon where Chris reluctantly talks about his life in high school, how uncool he was, and a little tidbit you just wouldn't have imagined from a guy who's this talented with an axe and songwriting. You went home, played some hometown shows. You did get to go home again. They say you can't go home again, but you made it happen. Was that weird or cool? Both. It's weird and cool, you know, because there's guys you went to high school with or anything. and I don't know. It's just... They know you when you when you when you weren't cool, <laughs> and what you're still was, not. But everybody else thinks you might be, you know. So okay, so you brought it up. What was the most uncool thing about you in high school? Everything, everything about me was uncool in high school. But that's okay. <laughs> I don't. I, I just I can't believe that. I can't believe that at all. Were you marching band? What was your gig? Uh, I played sports and I, you know, uh, got good grades. I was I was pretty straight straight laced back then. Okay. All right. Yeah, because you're valedictorian, right? Yes. Guilty. <laughs> Smart and talented. We love that. Yep. Uncool. How many of us felt uncool in high school? Raise your hands, please. That's just about everybody. And so let's take a listen to some of the songs he's written for others. Uh, my sister's a songwriter, so she's been sending me Chris Stapleton songs for a long time and saying, I don't want to write anymore. <laughs> That's how good he is. And everybody from Adele to Tim McGraw, I mean, you just can't, you can go on and on. And what a different type of singer Adele is than Tim McGraw. So what writing chops. Um, but this is him at an ASCAP expo. And ASCAP is a, is a collection of royalties uh, agency that basically makes money for songwriters and collects money from bars and record labels and everybody else so that the writer can get rewarded. And they have expos from time to time where writers perform for other writers. And it's just wonderful. I mean, I think it's sustenance for writers, these expos. And they just honor each other. Here's, him, here's Chris Stapleton singing Whiskey and You. But I do have uh, some drinking songs. <laughs> and uh, this is one that was on a Tim McGraw record. There's a bottle on a dresser by your ring, and it's empty. So right now I don't feel a thing, and I'll be hurting when I wake up on the floor, and I'll be over it by noon. That's the difference. Between whiskey and you Come tomorrow I can walk in any store It ain't a problem They'll always sell me more But your forgiveness well, That's something I can't buy Anything that I can do That's the difference Between 
queen whiskey you one's devil one keeps driving me insane at times I wonder if they ain't both the same but one's a liar it helps to hide me from my pain and one's a long Gonna be the truth. That's the difference between whiskey and you. Wow. Straight to the heart. What a storyteller in the end. Let's take a listen to another. This Adele recorded. If it hadn't been for love, this too at a Sundance ASCAP Music Showcase. Uh, this is a song I wrote. Uh any of you bought the 21 album, the Adele album, over in uh, Europe, which I know a lot of you did. <laughs> this, was, this was on. Never would have hitchhiked to Birmingham if it hadn't been for love. Never would have caught the train to lose again if it hadn't been for love. Never would have run through the blinding rain. And then in 2013, Stapleton took a run at his own record. And, well, I don't think he was completely happy with the way the record was put together, particularly the way it was recorded. But, boy, the songwriting was there. And I think you'll get a lot of people picking this record up. My favorite from this record, and my wife introduced me to this one, What Are You Listening To? forget she wrote she wrote me she goes listen to that line is it a cover band in some college bar 
where it's na na nas and air guitars. And I just went, she went, damn it, I want to write that. It's not fair. And now we get to the Traveler, which I think is just a masterwork. And let's take a listen to Tennessee Whiskey. The work of Chris Stapleton. Google him and Justin Timberlake doing this. A little bit of Nashville, a little bit of Memphis. The horns come in, a little bit of stacks, too. More from Chris Stapleton as we go out. He was born in 1978. This day in history. Habib and this is Our American Stories and now it's time for our Turning Point series where we hear from both famous and ordinary folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what came before it, what came after it, and where they are now. And today we're joined by Mark Johnson who was a fundraising executive for the United Way and one day decided to become a cop and he was 50, 50 years old at this turning point. Mark Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Lee. Hey, Mark, before we get into your turning point, we ask every guest about their childhood. How did your parents and your community shape you, if at all? Where were you originally born, and where did you spend the greater part of your childhood? Well, I was uh, I spent the greater part of my childhood in uh, Luling, Louisiana, but I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, in a home for unwed mothers. And I was adopted by my parents who moved me to Luling, Louisiana, where they resided. And I, I spent five years of my life in Luling, where I got very fond memories of the Deep South. And then we moved to St. Louis when my father got a promotion, and I graduated high school from St. Louis. And then from there, you, you ended up being a fundraising executive for the United Way. Uh, right. How did you find your way there? And talk about that journey. Well, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I majored in English. Um, with uh, 
I don't know, a fantasy, boyish fantasy of writing the great American novel and all that, blah, blah, blah. And uh, found when I got out of uh, of college that uh, a degree in English didn't really do much for my uh, employability. And right. So I, I drove a cab in Denver. I drove a truck, ended up in Colorado Springs, and uh, uh, I was... Uh, I was a salesman, basically, with a two-state territory, uh, selling French's mustard and other French's products uh, to grocery stores and supermarket chains. And uh, I didn't really enjoy it much. Uh, I had to be on the road all week and only home on weekends. And uh, so I I started looking for something closer. And uh, there was an opening at the United Way. I had also done some freelance writing for the local newspapers uh, during my uh, sales career, and uh, the local uh, newspapers in Colorado Springs included the Pro Rodeo Sports News, so I covered rodeos and interviewed rodeo cowboys. But that wasn't very uh, uh, stable income, and so I was looking for something that was a real job with a paycheck and an office and that sort of thing, and there was an opening for a public relations director for the United Way, the Pikes Peak United Way. And uh, to my shock, I was hired. Um, and so that started my, my career with United Way. I didn't even, I, I had always thought mistakenly that United Way was all run by volunteers. It shocked me that they actually have a bare bones uh, full-time professional staff to, to run the campaigns, and uh, it's a year-round job. But uh, that's how I came to the field. And after seven years at the Pikes Peak United Way, my, my boss, who was also my mentor, said, I'm going to push you out of the nest. You're ready to run your own United Way. So I activated my, my file with the United Way of America, and they hooked me up with uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, where there was a vacancy for a, an executive director of the Waukesha County United Way. And I went there uh, and uh, worked for seven years. And I still had kind of a yearning for the Deep South because of those fond memories of my early childhood. And also the brutal winters in Wisconsin had something to do with that yearning, I think. Yep. And... Uh, so uh, there came an opening for a an executive director of the United Way of Southwest Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, and I came down for an interview. They offered me a job, and I thought, this this is the job, and I, I moved down with my family from uh, Wisconsin to Mobile, Alabama, arrived here in 1995. You'd been up there in, in, in Waukesha, and you'd been up in, and you'd been in Colorado as well, but there was this poll. What was it, Mark? What do you think it was? Well, uh, part of it was the uh, uh, the diversity of the city of Mobile. Uh, I lived in Waukesha County, which is about uh, 95% white, and the 5% is uh, Hispanic. And so, and then you go you go 20 minutes to the to the east, and you're in Milwaukee County, and it, there's it's very diverse, very black, but it's ghettoized. And I remembered from my my earliest memories in the South, in Luling, Louisiana, just outside of New Orleans. But there, we were living cheek by jowl uh, with black folks, and uh, and and that wasn't the way it was up in Wisconsin. And so, you know, I got to admit, my mama read me Uncle Remus stories uh, for bedtime, and that was kind of my image of the South. All the Hollywood stuff I knew firsthand was was bogus, the Mississippi burnings and all of that stuff. And so, I wanted to get back to a community that was uh, more diverse than Waukesha, Wisconsin, and had uh, uh, gentler rhythms and uh, uh, 
just a more uh, peaceful kind of uh, existence. And so that's really what drew me to the South, the diversity, the food, the culture, the music, the literature, uh, all kind of conspired to, to lure me back to the Deep South, and I've never regretted it. Well, yeah. talk about this tug towards being a cop and away from this being an executive at the United Way. What caused you to leave the United Way? Well, uh, I had been in it for counting the seven years in uh, Mobile. I had been a uh, United Way executive for uh, 22 years and uh, had had a lot of success, found it very gratifying, uh, raised uh, over $100 million in the three different communities I had served. Um, but uh, something about turning 50, I don't know. I, I looked back on my life, and I thought um, – how much different? I've raised $100 million, but how much difference in those communities did the $100 million do? And by all the measures that I had at, at hand as a United Way exec on, uh, you know, uh, teen pregnancy and domestic violence and poverty and illiteracy and all those things that we raise money to try to alleviate, I didn't see a whole lot of progress in any of the communities I had served. And I really wanted something that was less abstract than raising money and funding agencies and programs. Uh, I wanted something that was more hands-on where I could actually make a difference and see the results. And I could not come up with anything more hands-on than being a cop. And I'd always, you know, I had that little boy fantasy of being a policeman. Uh, that had always been in the back of my mind. But as I grew older and had a family, I realized there's no way I can uh, raise a couple of kids and put them through college on a cop's pay. And uh, so I didn't do it. But then I was 50. My kids were out of college. Their college was paid for. The house we had was paid for. And I thought, you know, I might be able to sustain the cut and pay and still become a cop if I'm not too old. So I happened to know the chief of police because he had been part of the United Way campaign, uh, volunteer campaign uh, group. And uh, so I went by police headquarters one day and talked to the chief and said, you know, I'm thinking of a career change. And he said, great, what are you thinking of? And I said, I'm thinking of your career. And uh, he said, really? I said, my question is, am I too old? And he said, well, no, you look like you're pretty fit. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you can pass the physical, I, I think you probably would make a pretty decent cop. Why don't you give it a try? So I uh, quit my job at the United Way and uh, put my name in the hat for the upcoming police academy, and that started the whole process of uh, months of testing and background checks and physicals and all of that. And I hedged my bets uh, thinking that just in case I don't get on with the Mobile Police Department, I have family out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and so does my wife. So I went out to Albuquerque and also applied with the Albuquerque PD and the uh, Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office out there. Mark, hold that thought. When we come back, more with Mark Johnson, author of Apprehensions and Convictions, Adventures of a 50-Year-Old Rookie Cop. We'll hear more about fulfilling his boyhood dream of becoming a cop after this short break, this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Mark Johnson, who decided as a 50-year-old that being a fundraising executive was just too abstract. And so he applied to become a rookie cop. Mark, you just told us how you applied to the department near your home in Mobile, Alabama, and also hedged your bets by applying to the Albuquerque Police Department way out west where you just happen to have family. Tell us what happened next. So I started these two processes side by side, had to make about three or four trips out to Albuquerque, and uh, they moved a little bit faster than Mobile does, which is no surprise if you know the Deep South. Mm -hmm. Um, And I got to the end of the process in Albuquerque before I had gotten to the end of the process in Mobile. And the end of the process in both departments is uh, the, the shrink who kind of does the last screening of your psychological profile side, whether or not you would be fit for law enforcement. And that's where I, I uh, uh, the harsh reality of being 50 years old with a resume that doesn't look like a typical cop's resume uh, pretty much uh, came in the way of my dreams of law enforcement, at least in New Mexico, uh, because the lady shrink basically informed me that, uh, which I already knew, she said, you know, Social work is not the same thing as police work. And I said, yes, I know that. She said, you really don't have any of the qualifications we're looking for. Most cops are former military, uh, et cetera. And I said, yeah, but I think I think I have something to offer the police department. And she said, well, uh, have you seen the studies that I have that show that officers who come to the job with a view that it's primarily service rather than primarily law enforcement uh, are three times more likely to be injured or killed on the job than the ones who view it as primarily enforcement. And I said, no, I hadn't seen that stat, but I, I didn't think that was going to happen to me. And she said, well, I, I think either you would be injured or killed on the job because of your social work outlook, or you would be bored with it and you would quit before we could recover the cost of training you. So I can't, I can't recommend that you be a part of the next class. And that was a long discouraged drive back from Albuquerque to Mobile. I bet. I bet. I was thinking, boy, have I done a, have I, is this a really dumb career move or what? Indeed. And by the way, just going backwards, just a second, you, when you quit the United way, you didn't consult with your bride. Uh, How did she take this move? Because this ultimately, when you finally do land this job in uh, close to home, uh, you're going to get quite a pay cut from the former job. How did your bride take the news? Uh, Not well. Not well. Uh, she was furious, I guess would be the best word. She, uh, we talked about the cut and pay, and I, you know, I went over our savings and investments and all of that and convinced her that we would be all right with the cut and pay. And, uh, and she said, well, what about the, the cut in social status? I mean, you're going to be in a uniform, and all of your peers are going to be 25 to 30 years old. Uh, do you think any of our friends are going to want to associate with a guy who does that for a living? And I said, well, you know, our real friends will stick with us. Yep. And that, that didn't matter. <laughs> uh, but the main thing that bothered her was the safety issue. She yeah. thought, she said, you know, you're 50 years old. I know you're in good shape. But, uh, you know, don't take this wrong, honey, but you're not a natural warrior. <laughs> and and she, she knew me. She knew me. I had never won a fight. I've only been in three or four in my whole life, and I always lost. And uh, I said, but that's, that's not an issue. That's what the academy's for. They, they teach you all that stuff. And she right. said, I don't know. I don't know. This doesn't sound good. And besides that, you're not living up to your potential. I mean, you, 
She said, you can, you can raise money, you can persuade people, you can write, you can do lots of things that will never get used as a cop. And I think you're, uh, you're not living up to your potential. You're not being a good steward of the gifts you've been given. And that one cut the deepest and uh, really disturbed me. Uh, but the fact is, I finally decided that uh, I needed to do this. And so I did. And only one person can lead a life that's our own, and that's us. So in the end, right. our loved ones just have to get used to what we're going to do and that's ultimately right. rally around it or, well, just complain a lot. Yeah, and she did, she did a lot of the complaining, but uh, uh, she eventually uh, came to see what I was about and why I wanted to do it and how much the job challenged and stimulated me and satisfied me. Uh, it really... It was a rebirth for me. Oh, and that's great. And then ultimately, when she sees that her husband's reborn, she's got to perhaps reevaluate her initial assessment of the matter. By the way, the other recruits called you Pawpaw, uh, yeah. which is interesting. But yet at the same time, well, they had to be looking at you as a, as a guy who'd been around the block as well. Tell us about your first night in a patrol car with your field training officer. What oh, did he tell you? Well, he said, uh, he said, just first of all, forget everything they taught you in the academy. It doesn't really apply here on the streets, which is uh, completely different. And uh, just keep your mouth shut and don't embarrass me. Um, and uh, so I, I did that. He said, I don't know why you would ever give up the job you had and the status you had to work for this damn department uh, doing this job. But, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be living with you for a month now and just uh, just watch what I do and do what I do, and, uh, and maybe you'll survive. And this guy was, I don't know, in his early 30s. He's an ex-Marine, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was hard to, uh, to keep uh, my mouth shut a lot because his idea of policing and my idea of policing were completely different. Well, and that, that happens in life and every, and every kind of work. I want to read yes. something from your book. Uh, and this is from Apprehensions and Convictions, Adventures of a 50-Year-Old Rookie Cop. I was starting to believe the old saying about police work, 90% boredom and 10% terror. I was craving the terror and thinking maybe this really was a dumb career move after all. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we spent the first few days uh, uh, doing traffic, uh, stopping speeders or people whose uh, license tag was out of date or whatever. And it was really dull. Uh, and uh, so I was thinking, uh, you know, if, if this is what I'm going to be doing, uh, this is not exactly what I signed on for. I thought I was going to be helping people, not writing tickets for speeders. And, but that's what my, my FTO liked to do. And he explained to me that uh, traffic stops is one way we apprehend more serious criminals because uh, they, they do a minor traffic infraction and we can maybe catch guys that way. But uh, all we were doing was writing tickets, and I just thought, wow, this was, this was not exactly what I, what I was looking for. And that all changed when uh, we got our first hot call, and it was a domestic dispute. And uh, that's when I got a real taste of what police work was like and the new world I had stepped into. And here's something you told us in the pre-interview. Quote, most rewarding is helping in a hands-on way. When a drunk dad topped over the Christmas tree, beat the mom, the kids are screaming, and to be able to defuse a situation like that just feels great. As we close things out, Mark, talk about that quote and what you really learned and what you really got 
uh, from this great and really pretty precipitous career change? Well, uh, what I really learned and what I really got was way more than I bargained for. I, I saw, I thought I had street smarts because it, I had visited a lot of our United Way agencies, which are in tough neighborhoods. Uh, so I thought I knew my way around in the bad parts of town, but I had never really been in people's homes, certainly not in the middle of a domestic dispute. And the kind of tragedies that I saw, the screaming children, the bloodied wives, the Christmas trees knocked over, and the unrepentant and uh, hostile uh, uh, batterers, uh, that was a shock. And I came to it with this social worker pros- uh, perspective where I, I used to carry United Way brochures, and I would, I would talk to the guy who had just beat up his wife and say, you know, I can get you into an anger management class, and it's, a, it's no fees, a sliding fee scale, whatever you can afford, and, and blah, blah, blah. And he would look at me, and my fellow cops would look at me, and the battered wife would look at me like I was from another planet. Um, they, they weren't interested in uh, those kinds of uh, approaches. They wanted me, uh, They wanted me to remove the threat. That was what I was paid to do, was eliminate the threat and bring, a, bring justice to the scene. And, and here I was trying to work as a social worker in a, in a police uniform. And uh, I was disabused of that fantasy in pretty short order in the first year that I was on the streets and realized that, that sometimes, uh, you know, an intervention or a new agency or a program is not really going to do anything, and you've got to put the cuffs on somebody and take him to jail because that's really all you can do. But that's good enough for a battered wife and terrorized children on Christmas morning. You bet. It's, and, in fact, it's all they need. And you're retired now, Mark. Yes. What do you do with your time, and do you ever miss it? That is not the United Way executive position, but do you ever miss being a cop? Absolutely. Every time I see a cop with his lights and sirens going, I wish I could get in the chase. Um, uh, but I'm too old for it. And that, that realization came to me uh, after my 12th year as a cop and realized that uh, not only was I maybe not up to snuff just for my own safety, but for the guys I worked with, my reactions weren't as quick and my memory wasn't as sharp. And so it was time to hang it up. But I still miss it, and I keep in touch with all my buddies back at the precinct. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on this Turning Point series. We've been talking to Mark Johnson, the United Way executive turned 50-year-old cop, also the author of Apprehensions and Convictions, Adventions, Adventures of a 50-Year-Old Rookie Cop. Mark Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. You bet, you bet. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Drifting by.
It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. This is Our American Stories, and for the hour, cover songs. We saw Rolling Stone readers' 10 best covers, and we thought, let's do that, and let's pick some of our own. You're listening to the 1965 Broadway musical, The Roar of the Grease Paint, and the song The Smell of the Crowd, and Rolling Stone thought that the version you're about to hear was the best cover of this song and came in at number 10. Here's the muse singing Feeling Good. Birds flying high You know how I feel Sun in the sky It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me And I'm feeling And that was the Rolling Stone reader's opinion, but Jesse's Nina Simone singing Birds Feeling Good. High, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah, it's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me, ooh, 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 ooh. and I'm feeling good. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. And now we're going to go to number nine, and it's so hard to turn off any Nina Simone song. Yeah, I think Jesse won too. And originally written for the soundtrack of Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid, Knocking on Heaven's Door gave Bob Dylan a much-needed hit after years of being written off as a washed-up 60s folk act. Ooh, 
Stone Reader's Choice, and, well, everybody's covered it, Eric Clapton, you too, but in 1990, Guns N' Roses recorded it for their Days of Thunder soundtrack and introduced it to an entirely new generation. It has been a staple of their live show ever since. come back we're going to rip through the rest of rolling stones reader's choice for top 10 covers let's go out with axel guns and roses and their cover of bob dylan's classic Pond, in the pond, 
where the sun don't ever shine. I wish you were all night through. You're listening to Lead Belly. Where did you sleep last night? We're hitting Rolling Stone's Reader's Choice Best Covers. And let me tell you, I'm a huge Lead Belly fan, and I don't think there are many better singers. But when I saw Nirvana cover this song, one of the last, if not last, songs in that amazing Unplugged in 1990, well, take a listen to Kurt Cobain do this, and anybody who doubted his talent as a singer, not just a writer, well, they had to rethink everything.
you just can't stop that song. It's impossible. And now number seven. Here's the original. It's Dolly Parton's Jolene. That 1973 classic It's the voice of a desperate woman Begging a more attractive woman To not steal her man Not a single word is reserved For the man in that love triangle by the way The White Stripes, Jack White Recorded a snarling Feedback laden cover in 2000 Let's take a listen And we are covering Rolling Stone's Reader's Pick of the 10 Greatest Cover Songs. And now it's time for number six. Here's the original. The Isley Brothers, Twist and Shout. In their 1963 LP, Please Please Me, in a single day, they recorded that song. So when it came time for John Lennon to sing a cover of the Isley Brothers' Twist and Shout, near the end of the session, his voice, it was just shredded. He rallied by gargling milk and swallowing cough drops before nailing the song in just two takes.
This is Our American Stories. The top ten readers' choice covers a Rolling Stone. And by the way, what made this song so special were the raw vocals of John Lennon. He was never happy with them, but that's what made the song special. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Rolling Stone readers pick the top ten greatest cover songs. And that's the original version of David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. And then Nirvana. Again, this is the second of theirs in this top ten. And here's their version. Again, MTV Unplugged, 1993.
And now we're winding down. We're getting into the top five now at number four. Well, here's the original. Off Sergeant Peppers. It seemed like a throwaway. And a great throwaway. Take a listen. What would you think if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing. And by the way, you rarely heard Ringo sing there on Honey Don't, another rockabilly tune, but very rarely a perfect drummer. But my goodness, every once in a while, he hit it out of the park as a singer too. But the cover that Rolling Stone fans went for, well, it was one of the most indelible images from Woodstock. Joe Cocker looking so, well, just stoned. He could barely stand upright, belting out this same classic. It was like an old soul standard by the time he was done with it. Take a listen. Tell don't say it no more. 
Stories. We're doing the countdown. Rolling Stone readers pick the top ten greatest cover songs. And there are very few singers who could dominate a lineup like Woodstock's. But he stole the movie. He stole the show. And then you see John Belushi's take. Because you know that's all John Belushi wanted to do was be Joe Cocker. You knew it when he did it. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. The final three when we come back. After these messages. Stories. You're listening to Leonard Cohn's Hallelujah. His career was at a low point when he wrote that song in the early 80s. His label had no interest in even releasing the track or the rest of the songs that eventually came out in his 1984 album Various Positions. The track was a fan favorite, though, but it didn't receive much love until the Velvet Underground's John Cale created a stripped-down piano version for a 1991 Leonard Cohn tribute album. But it was this cover by Jeff Buckley that Rolling Stone readers put in at number three best covers. Here is the remarkable Jeff Buckley who died of far too early and premature death.
Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing. Faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. And she tied you to her kitchen chair. And she broke your throne and she cut your hair. And from your lips she drew the holly. And now we're getting down to number two, and here's the original. It's Nine Inch Nails, "Hurt." And then in 1994, well, Trent Reznor remembers the first time he saw the video for Johnny Cash's cover. Tears started welling up, he said. I realized it wasn't my song anymore. Let's take a listen. I hurt myself 
today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all Upon my liar's chair Full of broken thoughts I cannot repair Beneath the stains of time The feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all I don't know how you put something ahead of that. I don't think it's possible. That's our number one for the Rolling Stone readers. Well, here's the original by Bob Dylan. There must be some way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief 
And here's the number one, no need for an introduction. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. This is our American Stories, Rolling Stone Readers, Top 10 Greatest Cover Songs. Take a listen. <laughs> 